Section 11 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 11. The Burning of Rome Under Nero. A.D. 64, by Heinrich Sienkiewicz, Part 1. Sienkiewicz and Tacitus. Nero, when a youth, was placed under charge of the philosopher Seneca, who carefully attended to his education. During Nero's nonage, he was persevering in his studies and made great progress in Greek. By a subterfuge of his mother's, he was proclaimed emperor in the place of Britannicus, the real heir to the throne. In the early part of his reign, public affairs were wisely conducted, but the private life of Nero was given up to vice and profligacy. His love for Poppaea led him into the crime of matricide, for she, wishing to share the imperial throne, and knowing it was impossible while his mother, Agrippina, lived, induced him to authorize her assassination. Strange that Seneca and Burrus should have approved of this, yet Tacitus admits that such was the case. In the eighth year of his reign, Nero divorced his wife, Octavia, and married Poppaea. Nero was an accomplished musician and sang verses composed by himself. He eagerly sought the plaudits of the multitude by reciting his compositions in public. Historians are divided in opinion as to whether Nero was the cause of the burning of Rome. During the conflagration, to court popularity, he ordered temporary shelters to be provided for the houseless. Yet the people did not acclaim this deed as it was reported that Nero, at the very time Rome was in flames, sang the destruction of Troy in his private theater, likening the present disaster to that ancient catastrophe. In order to divert the masses from what they believed the true origin of the fire, Nero charged it upon the Christians, many hundreds of whom were sacrificed to his fury. He was the last of the Caesars, and died by his own hand amid universal execrations, in June A.D. 68, four years after the destruction of Rome. Heinrich Sienkiewicz The fire began at the Circus Maximus, in that section which touches the Palatine and Caelian Hill. It rushed on with inconceivable rapidity and fastened upon the whole center of Rome. Since the time of Brennus, never had the city witnessed such an awful catastrophe. A freedman of Caesar's, Phaon by name, ran panting into Nero's presence, shrieking, Rome is in flames, the conflagration is great. All Caesar's guests arose from their recumbent attitude. Ye gods, I shall see a burning city. Now can I finish the Troyadi? exclaimed Nero, placing his lute aside. If I go at once, can I view the fire? My lord, the whole city is as a sea of flame. The smoke is suffocatingly heavy and is destroying the people. The inhabitants faint away or rashly cast themselves into the fire, maddened with terror. All Rome perishes. And Nero raised his hands and cried, Woe, woe to thee, thou sacred city of Priam. Fires were frequent enough in Rome. During these conflagrations, violence and robbery were rampant, particularly so in those sections of the city inhabited by needy half-barbarian peoples, a folk comprising rabble from every part of the world. The fear of servile rebellion was like a nightmare, which had stifled Rome for many years. It was believed that hundreds of thousands of those people were thinking of the times of Spartacus, and merely waiting for a favorable moment to seize arms against their oppressors and Rome. Now the moment had come. 
Perhaps war and slaughter were raging in the city together with fire. It was possible even that the Praetorians had hurled themselves on the city and were slaughtering at command of Caesar. And that moment the hair rose on Winicius's head from terror. He recalled all the conversations about burning cities which for some time had been repeated at Caesar's court with wonderful persistence. Well, he recalled Caesar's complaints that he was forced to describe a burning city without having seen an actual fire. His contemptuous answer to Tigellinus, who offered to burn Antium or an artificial wooden city, finally his complaints against Rome and the pestilential alleys of the Sabura. Yes, truly Caesar has commanded the burning of the city. Only he could give such a command, as Tigellinus alone could accomplish it. But if Rome is burning at command of Caesar, who can be sure that the population will not be slaughtered at his command? The monster is capable of just such a deed. Conflagration, a servile revolt, and slaughter. What a horrible chaos. What a letting loose of destructive elements and horrid universal frenzy. The night had paled long since. The dawn had passed into light and on all the nearer summits golden, rosy gleams were shining, which might come either from burning Rome or the rising daylight. Winicius ran to the hill, the summit was reached, and then a terrible sight struck his eyes. All the lower region was covered with smoke, forming, as it were, one gigantic cloud lying close to the earth. In this cloud, towns, aqueducts, villas, trees disappeared, but farther beyond this gray, ghastly plain, the city was burning on the hills. The conflagration had not the form of a pillar of fire, as happens when a single building is burning, even when of the greatest size. That was a long belt, rather, shaped like the belt of dawn. Above this belt rose a wave of smoke, in places entirely black, in places looking rose-colored, in places like blood, in places turning in on itself, in some places inflated, in others squeezed and squirming, like a serpent which is unwinding and extending. That monstrous wave seemed at times to cover even the belt of fire, which became then as narrow as a ribbon, but later this ribbon illuminated the smoke from beneath, changing its lower rolls into waves of flame. The two extended from one side of the sky to the other, hiding its lower part, as at times a stretch of forest hides the horizon. The Sabine hills were not visible in the least. It seemed at the first glance of the eye that not only the city was burning, but the whole world, and that no living being could save itself from that ocean of flame and smoke. The wind blew with increasing strength from the region of the fire, bringing the smell of burnt things and of smoke, which began to hide even nearer objects. Clear daylight had come, and the sun lighted up the summits surrounding the Alban Lake. But the bright golden rays of the morning appeared reddish and sickly through the haze. Winicius, while descending toward Albanum, entered smoke which was denser, less and less transparent. The town itself was buried in it thoroughly. The alarmed citizens had moved out to the street. It was a terror to think of what might be in Rome when it was difficult to breathe in Albanum. He met increasing numbers of people who had deserted the city and were going to the Alban hills. They had escaped the fire and wished to go beyond the line of smoke. Before he had reached Oosternum, he had to slacken his pace because of the throng. Besides pedestrians with bundles on their backs, he met horses with packs, mules and vehicles laden with effects, and finally litters in which slaves were bearing the wealthier citizens. The town of Oosternum was so thronged with fugitives from Rome that it was difficult to push through the crowd. On the market square, under temple porticos, and on the streets were swarms of fugitives.
Here and there, people were erecting tents under which whole families were to find shelter. Others settled down under the naked sky, shouting, calling on the gods, or cursing the fates. In the general terror, it was difficult to inquire about anything. New crowds of men, women, and children arrived from the direction of Rome every moment. These increased the disorder and outcry. Some, gone astray in the throng, sought desperately those whom they had lost. Others fought for a camping place. Half-crazy shepherds from the Campania crowded to the town to hear news, or find profit in plunder made easy by the uproar. Here and there, crowds of slaves of every nationality and gladiators fell to robbing houses and villas in the town, and to fighting with the soldiers who appeared in defense of the citizens. Junius, a friend of Winicius, said, after a moment's hesitation, in a low voice, I know that thou wilt not betray me, so I will tell thee that this is no common fire. People were not permitted to save the circus. When houses began to burn in every direction, I myself heard thousands of voices exclaiming, Death to those who save. Certain people ran through the city and hurled burning torches into the buildings. On the other hand, people are revolting and crying that the city is burning at command. I can say nothing more. Woe to the city, woe to us all, and to me. The tongue of man cannot tell what is happening there. People are perishing in flames or slaying one another in the throng. This is the end of Rome. Winicius, nearing the walls, found it easier to reach Rome than penetrate to the middle of the city. It was difficult to push along the Apian Way because of the throng of people. Houses, cemeteries, fields, gardens, and temples lying on both sides of it were turned into camping places. In the Temple of Mars, which stood near the Porta Appia, the crowd had thrown down the doors so as to find a refuge within during night hours. In the cemeteries, the larger monuments were seized and battles fought in defense of them, which were carried to bloodshed. Ustronum, with its disorder, gave barely a slight foretaste of that which was happening beneath the walls of the capital. All regard for the dignity of law, for family ties, for difference of position, had ceased. Gladiators drunk with wine seized in the emporium, gathered in crowds and ran with wild shouts through the neighboring squares, trampling, scattering, and robbing the people. A multitude of barbarian slaves, exposed for sale in the city, escaped from the booths, for them, the burning and ruin of Rome were at once the end of slavery and the hour of revenge, so that when the permanent inhabitants, who had lost all they owned in the fire, stretched their hands to the gods in despair, calling for rescue, these slaves with howls of delight scattered the crowds, dragged clothing from people's backs, and bore away the younger women. They were joined by other slaves serving in the city from of old, wretches who had nothing on their bodies save woolen girdles around their hips, dreadful figures from the alleys, who were hardly ever seen on the streets in the daytime, and whose existence in Rome it was difficult to suspect. Men of this wild and unrestrained crowd, Asiatics, Africans, Greeks, Thracians, Germans, Britons, howling in every language of the earth, raged, thinking that the hour had come in which they were free to reward themselves for years of misery and suffering. In the midst of that surging throng of humanity, in the glitter of day and of fire, shown the helmets of Praetorians, under whose protection the more peaceable population had taken refuge, and who in hand-to-hand -hand battle had to meet the raging multitude in many places. Winicius had seen captured cities, but never had his eyes beheld a spectacle in which despair, tears, pain, groans, wild delight, madness, rage, and license 
were mingled together in such immeasurable chaos. Above this heaving, mad human multitude roared the fire, surging up to the hilltops of the greatest city on earth, sending into the whirling throng its fiery breath and covering it with smoke, through which it was impossible to see the blue sky. The young tribune, with supreme effort and exposing his life every moment, forced his way at last to the Apian Gate, but there he saw that he could not reach the city through the division of the Porta Capina, not merely because of the throng, but also because of the terrible heat from which the whole atmosphere was quivering inside the gate. Besides, the bridge at the Porta Trigenia, opposite the temple of the Bona Dea, did not exist yet. Hence, those who wished to go beyond the Tiber had to pass through to the Pons Sublicius, that is, to pass around the Aventine through a part of the city covered now with one sea of flame. That was an impossibility. Winicius understood that he must return toward Ustrinum, turn from the Apian Way, cross the river below the city, and go to the Via Portuensis, which led straight to the Trans-Tiber. That was not easy because of the increasing disorder on the Apian Way. At the Fountain of Mercury, however, he saw a centurion who was known to him. This man, at the head of a few tens of soldiers, was defending the precinct of the temple. He commanded him to follow. Recognizing a tribune and an Augustian, the centurion did not dare to disobey the order. He and his men were followed by curses and a shower of stones, but to these he gave no heed, caring only to reach freer spaces at the earliest. Still he advanced with the greatest effort. People who had encamped would not move, and heaped loud curses on Caesar and the Praetorians. The throng assumed in places a threatening aspect. Thousands of voices accused Nero of burning the city. He and Popea were threatened with death. Shouts of buffoon, actor, matricide were heard round about. Some shouted to drag him to the Tiber, others that Rome had shown patience enough. It was clear that where a leader found, these threats could be changed into open rebellion which might break out any moment. Meanwhile, the rage and despair of the crowd turned against the Praetorians, who for another reason could not make their way out of the crowd. The road was blocked by piles of goods, born from the fire previously, boxes, barrels of provisions, furniture the most costly, vessels, infants' cradles, beds, carts, handpacks. Here and there they fought hand to hand, but the Praetorians conquered the weaponless multitude easily. After they had ridden with difficulty across the Vi Latina, Numidia, Ardia, Lavinia, and Ostia, and passed around villas, gardens, cemeteries, and temples, Winicius reached at last a village called Vicus Alexandri, beyond which he crossed the Tiber. There was more open space at this spot and less smoke. From fugitives, of whom there was no lack even there, he learned that only certain alleys of the Trans-Tiber were burning, but that surely nothing could resist the fury of the conflagration, since people were spreading the fire purposely and permitted no one to quench it, declaring that they acted at command. The young tribune had not the least doubt then that Caesar had given command to burn Rome, and the vengeance which people demanded seemed to him just and proper. What more could Mithridates or any of Rome's most inveterate enemies have done? The measure had been exceeded. His madness had grown to be too enormous, and the existence of people too difficult because of him. All believed that Nero's hour had struck, that those ruins into which the city was falling should and must overwhelm the monstrous buffoon together with all those crimes of his. Should a man be found of courage sufficient to stand at the head of the despairing people, that might happen in a few hours. Here vengeful and daring thoughts began to fly through his head. 
But if he should do that, the family of Winicius, which till recent times counted a whole series of consuls, was known throughout Rome. The crowds needed only a name. Once, when 400 slaves of the prefect Padanius Secundus were sentenced, Rome reached the verge of rebellion and civil war. What would happen today in view of a dreadful calamity surpassing almost everything which Rome had undergone in the course of eight centuries? Whoever calls the Curates to arms, thought Winicius, will overthrow Nero undoubtedly and clothe himself in purple. The Trans-Tiber was full of smoke, and crowds of fugitives made it more difficult to reach the interior of the place, since people, having more time there, had saved greater quantities of goods. The main street itself was in many parts filled completely, and around the Numachia Augusta great heaps were piled up. Narrow alleys, in which smoke had collected more densely, were simply impassable. The inhabitants were fleeing in thousands. On the way, Winicius saw wonderful sights. More than once, two rivers of people, flowing in opposite directions, met in a narrow passage, stopped each other, men fought hand to hand, struck and trampled one another. Families lost one another in the uproar. Mothers called on their children despairingly. The young tribune's hair stood on end at thought of what must happen nearer the fire. Amid shouts and howls, it was difficult to inquire about anything or understand what was said. At times, new columns of smoke from beyond the river rolled toward them, smoke black and so heavy that it moved near the ground, hiding houses, people, and every object, just as night does. The fervor of a July day, increased by the heat of the burning parts of the city, became unendurable. Smoke pained the eyes, breath failed in men's breasts. Even the inhabitants who, hoping that the fire would not cross the river, had remained in their houses so far, began to leave them, and the throng increased hourly. The praetorians accompanying Winicius were in the rear. In the crush, someone wounded his horse with a hammer. The beast threw up its bloody head, reared, and refused obedience. The crowd recognized in Winicius an Augustian by his rich tunic, and at once cries were raised round about. Death to Nero and his incendiaries. This was a moment of terrible danger. Hundreds of hands were stretched toward Winicius, but his frightened horse bore him away, trampling people as he went, and the next moment a new wave of black smoke rolled in and filled the street with darkness. Winicius, seeing that he could not ride past, sprang to the earth and rushed forward on foot, slipping along walls and at times waiting till the fleeing multitude passed him. He said to himself in spirit that these were vain efforts. At times he stopped and rubbed his eyes. Tearing off the edge of his tunic, he covered his nose and mouth with it and ran on. As he approached the river, the heat increased terribly. Winicius, knowing that the fire had begun at the Circus Maximus, thought at first that that heat came from its cinders and from the Forum Boarium and the Wellabrum, which, situated nearby, must be also in flames. But the heat was growing unendurable. One old man, on crutches and fleeing, the last whom Winicius noticed, cried, Go not near the bridge of Cestius, the whole island is on fire. It was indeed impossible to be deceived any longer. At the turn toward the weakest Judeorum, the young tribune saw flames amid clouds of smoke. Not only the island was burning, but the trans-Tiber and the other end of the street on which he ran. End of section 11.